Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hello, and welcome to the other half. Supplemental, Elizabeth to Elizabeth, British Royal Funerals since 1603. Tomorrow, we will see Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of the United Kingdom and 14 other realms, laid to rest at St George's Chapel, Windsor, following a state funeral at Westminster Abbey. This will be an event without parallel. I myself queued up for hours to solemnly walk past the Queen's coffin, along with tens of thousands of others in Edinburgh and London. Perhaps over a million people will line the streets on Sunday to see the cortege drive past, and billions will be watching on television. It is a true mesh of a global media event and a deeply personal moment of grief and reflection, for none more so than her family. I will be watching. I'm sure many of you will be too. The Queen is dead. Long live the King. As a fan of history, events like this always makes me think of its forebears. While we have not buried a monarch in the UK since 1952, royal funerals have gone back hundreds of years, and we have, of course, had some in the intervening years, most notably those of Diana, Princess of Wales, in 1997, and Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, in 2002. But what did those funerals look like, and how will they compare to the one we will watch tomorrow? Well, there has been surprisingly little scholarship done on this subject. Indeed, I am indebted to Matthias Range and his excellent British State and Royal Funerals for the research for this episode. Given that this is a podcast about women in history, today we'll be talking about the royal funerals of queens and princesses over the past 400 years. Without exception, these are all state or ceremonial funerals. The distinction here is important, though not always clear. The fundamental difference is that a state funeral is the highest honour that a nation can bestow. It is held at public expense and includes full military, civic and national honours. Ceremonial funerals, on the other hand, generally only has one or two of those aspects. 
The funeral of a ruling king or queen has always been a state funeral, going back hundreds of years, but not all royal funerals are state funerals. Those, for example, of Diana, Princess of Wales, and Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, were ceremonial funerals, while Admiral Lord Nelson and Winston Churchill both received state funerals after they died in recognition of their service defending the nation from foreign invasion. No non-royal woman has ever received a state funeral in the United Kingdom, and only one, Margaret Thatcher, has received a ceremonial one. Funerals are ceremonies that pay respects to the dead and include the full participation of mourners. This means that they are, in effect, a performance. They are theatre, but they are also moments of introspection and an opportunity to reflect on the past and look to the future. So, let's travel back 400 years and see what the funeral of Elizabeth I will say about what we will see tomorrow. So why am I starting with Queen Elizabeth I? Well, there are two reasons. The first, and most obvious, is that she shares a name with our late Queen, and I do love me a bit of symmetry. But also, this is the first public royal funeral that took place here since the establishment of the Church of England. Elizabeth I died on the 24th of March, 1603, and much like the death of our current monarch, it came at a time of tremendous uncertainty. The length of her reign meant that few alive could remember a time when she hadn't been on the throne. Again, like Elizabeth II, she died at probably her favourite royal residence, in this case Richmond Palace, where she lay in state for a few days before being taken down with her by barge to the Palace of Whitehall. We're not exactly sure where she lay in state there, but it was most likely in the chapel. There, the body was guarded by a vigil of lords and ladies, who must have had quite the shock. Elizabeth's body, and there's only one way of saying this, exploded. Yep, you heard me right. Exploded. She had been placed in a lead casket within a wooden coffin, and when the gases released by her body met the candle flames in the chapel, it produced a loud crack, reducing part of the coffin to splinters, which must have frightened the life out of those guarding the body. Her corpse had to literally be sewn back together before the funeral could take place a little while later. On the 28th of April, her body was taken down the road now known as Whitehall and Lower Parliament Street to Westminster Abbey for burial. 
Amazingly, we have a complete list of all of those in attendance, which ran into the hundreds. The streets were packed with mourners from all walks of life. According to the contemporary chronicler John Stowe, quote, Westminster was surcharged with multitudes of all sorts of people in the streets, houses, windows, leads and gutters, that came to see the obsequy, and when they beheld her statue lying upon the coffin, there was such a general sighing, growing and weeping, as the like hath not been seen or known in the memory of man. As Stowe says, these onlookers saw a coffin lying on a carriage with an effigy of the Queen on top. She was wearing ceremonial robes with a crown on her head, scepter in hand, lying on purple velvet. There were choirs of singing choristers and knights on horseback. It was more or less exactly what you're probably imagining. One person that was not present was the new king, James VI and I, who had been asked to delay his arrival in London until after the funeral. Apparently his presence would have made everything a lot more complicated. Sadly, we don't know much about the funeral ceremony or the music that was played. It was led by the wonderfully named Lancelot Andrews, the Dean of Westminster, and we know from contemporary accounts and illustrations that there was music that was probably written by Thomas Morley, whose burial service was the first of its kind in England. The service either took place within the main part of the abbey, or more likely in the Henry VII chapel, where she was initially buried in a vault alongside her grandparents, Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. But a few years later, she was in fact reinterred with her sister Mary. Her coffin lies directly on top of hers. So now we'll move forward nearly a hundred years past the abolition and restoration of the monarchy to March 1695 and the funeral of Queen Mary II. The Queen, who predeceased her husband, William III, had asked for a quiet private funeral, but was overruled post-mortem by the Privy Council. They knew that her husband wasn't exactly beloved, an armed coup d'etat by a foreign ruler will tend to do that for a guy, and that his wife had been by far the more popular of the two. Therefore, it was hoped that this public spectacle might raise his profile and popularity. And what better way of getting people to love you than giving them a day off work? According to the diarist Narcissus Luttrell, quote, This being the day for the interment of Her Majesty, all the shops throughout the city were shut. So, just like tomorrow, the funeral of Mary II was a public holiday. Interestingly, despite this event being organised around boosting the king's popularity, he wasn't actually there. Indeed, it was very unusual for monarchs to be present at their wives' funerals. The past is indeed a very strange place. This was also the first time, but by no means the last, that parliamentarians participated in the funeral ceremony. Parliament was traditionally dissolved at the sovereign's death, with new elections taking place after the funeral. However, as William and Mary ruled jointly, this was not the case here. The British people had unprecedented access to the ceremony, as the Order of Service was printed and published ahead of time for the very first time. The Queen had died at Kensington Palace, and like her predecessor Elizabeth, was brought to lie in state at Whitehall. It was a simple nighttime procession, but her conveyance to Westminster Abbey a few days later was a far grander occasion. 
Once more there was music and great crowds. Singers, along with trumpeters and drummers, walked in front and behind the casket. The most notable thing about this funeral, though, is its music, which was written by Henry Purcell. The procession walked his funeral march, the most famous part of which was Thou Knowest, Lord, The Secret of Our Hearts, which I played at the start of the episode. Thou knowest, Lord, the secrets of our hearts. Shut not thy merciful ears until our prayers. But spare us, Lord most holy, O God most mighty, O holy and most merciful Saviour, thou most worthy judge eternal. Suffer us not at our last hour for any pains of death to fall away from thee. The service took place in the main body of the abbey and was presided over by the Archbishop of Canterbury with the lesson read by the dean. It was a very long service and concluded with the body being interred in the Henry VII chapel. According to the contemporary travel writer Celia Fiennes, quote, After the service of burial, which was done with solemn and mournful music and singing, the sound of a drum embraced, the breaking of all the white stays of those who had been officers of the Queen, and flinging in the keys of the rest of the officers devoted by that badge into the tomb. The funeral of Queen Mary quickly became a benchmark, the exemplar of a royal funeral, and was admired throughout Europe. A French writer recalled, quote, Never has one been honoured with such ceremonies, the obsequies of any royal person. They buried her body in the earth in a manner so solemn and so pompous that its noise could be transmitted to posterity. Now we'll skip past Queen Anne and move on to 1737 and the funeral of Queen Caroline of Ansbach, the wife of George II. The most notable thing about this one is another piece of music, this time Handel's funeral anthem, The Ways of Zion Do Mourn. The bit that I just played for you is only a bit of it. Indeed, the whole thing took around 45 minutes to play and was performed by an orchestra of nearly 200, which means that this must have felt more like an opera than a funeral. Indeed, one of the attendants noted that, quote, There was a fine anthem of Handel's, performed by a large and excellent band of music, which, however, some thought a little too theatrical for so solemn an occasion. The most remarkable part of this is the speed at which it was written. He was commissioned on the 7th of December 1737, with the service scheduled to take place just 10 days later. Given that his musicians needed time to practice and for everything to be prepared, he had only a week to put it all together. This anthem replaced much of the liturgy and the sermon, as it was considered that it contained enough references to the Queen on its own, though one imagines part of it might have been the sheer length of the service that they'd included everything. 
Over the next century or so, royal funerals became far smaller and more private. George II was the last royal to be buried in Westminster Abbey, with St George's Chapel Windsor becoming the most popular place for monarchs and their spouses to be laid to rest. While the ceremonies generally took place at Westminster Abbey, they were generally small, sedate affairs taking place mostly at night. Indeed, the grandest state funerals in this period were not for royals, but for Prime Minister William Pitt the Elder and Admiral Lord Horatio Nelson, the naval hero who had given the French several damn good thrashings. The next female public royal funeral wasn't until 1849. Queen Adelaide, the wife of the late William IV, had left detailed instructions on how she wanted her funeral to take place. Her niece, Queen Victoria, ordered that they be published so that everyone could read them. The army had dominated royal funerals to this point, but since Britannia ruled the waves, it was finally time for the navy to play their part, with her decreeing that sailors should carry her coffin into St George's Chapel. Otherwise, though, this was still a relatively small affair, and was dwarfed by the lavish state funerals for the Duke of Wellington and William Gladstone. So, we'll jump forward another half century after the break to one of the great state funerals of them all, that of Queen Victoria. There are myriad and obvious reasons why the funeral of Queen Victoria should be a great and grand event. Britannia ruled not only the waves, but over a vast empire over which the sun never set. For the first time we were burying not just a queen, but an empress. Much like with Queen Elizabeth II, Victoria's declining health was covered extensively in the press, and the public was warned that the end may be near, with a press release issued by the palace cautioning that, quote, the Queen is slowly sinking. At her bedside as she died were her son, the future King Edward VII, and her grandson and enemy of the podcast, the future Kaiser Wilhelm II. This was the first British royal funeral that was a true international event, with foreign royals and dignitaries being invited to pay their respects. The eyes of the world were on Britain, but once more, the funeral itself was comparatively simple. Victoria had ruled for 65 years, so she had plenty of time to think and plan her funeral, and a decree that she followed the tradition of it all taking place at Windsor. Indeed, the only real break from tradition would be that she wouldn't actually be buried at St George's, but at the nearby Frogmore Estate next to her late husband. There would be no period of lying in state in London, Indeed, the great capital of the empire would be almost entirely sidelined. The Queen had died at her beloved Osborne House on the Isle of Wight, and was transported over the Solent by boat and then by rail to Windsor via London. The atmosphere in the capital when she arrived was one of eerie quiet. People silently crammed the streets to see and hear the rattle of the gun carriage that bore the Queen from the station that bore her name to Paddington. The railway tracks were also lined with people who raised their hats as the train passed. The suffragist Josephine Butler wrote that, quote, Everybody is crying and people's blinds are drawn down. It is a real 
personal grief, while the novelist Henry James described himself and the nation as feeling, quote, motherless. There was a very real sense of a people living through something inconceivable. They were Victorians. They'd always been Victorians. What did it mean to live in a Britain over which she did not rule? Every account that I have read about this speak of this overwhelming silence and rudderlessness, something I'm sure many people have felt over the past week or so. The funeral itself, which took place on the 2nd of February 1901, was an elaborate occasion. It took place in the afternoon, following the example of Adelaide, and was led by the Archbishop of Canterbury, who from now on would always be the presiding churchman at royal funerals. Victoria decreed that only her servants and soldiers should carry her coffin. Despite all of the careful planning, there was still room for a slight hiccup in the journey, when a pin attached in the gun carriage to the horses broke, breaking the connection. A soldier from HMS Excellent attached rope and organised a company of soldiers to drag the carriage containing the coffin, a tradition that continues to this day. The guest list at the event is a virtual who's who, not just of contemporary royalty, but also of future combatants in the First World War. Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the Habsburg heir whose assassination would spark the conflict, was there, along with Kaiser Wilhelm. The Tsar was represented by his brother, Grand Duke Michael. Kings and princes from countries as diverse as Vietnam and Egypt were there, along with almost every crowned head of Europe. Perhaps surprisingly, given that the primary colour Victoria is associated with is black, she decreed that everything be white. This was also the first royal funeral procession to be filmed, and Pathé footage exists that is fascinating to watch. I'll put a link in the show notes. A full copy of the Order of Service also survives in the British Library and is available to read. It contained works by Beethoven and Tchaikovsky and Purcell's Thou Knowest Lord, Handel, though, was omitted, as the Queen had apparently not been a fan. Like almost all royal funerals before her, no hymns were sung. They were considered too informal for so solemn an occasion. The interment at Frogmore was a far smaller ceremony. The coffin was borne there to the bagpipes of the 42nd Highlanders, who played their anthem, the Black Watch, Death March and her coffin was lowered into the ground while the choir sang an anthem with words composed by Alfred Lord Tennyson. And since he is my favourite poet, I will not resist the urge to read it to you. The bridal garland falls upon the bier. The shadow of a crown that o'er him hung has vanished in the shadow cast by death. So princely, tender, truthful, reverent, pure, mourn, that a worldwide empire mourns with you, that all the thrones are clouded by your loss, were slender solace. Yet be comforted, for if this earth be ruled by perfect love, then, after his brief range of blameless days, the toll of a funeral in an angel ear sounds happier than in the merriest marriage bell. The face of death is toward the sun of life. His shadow darkens earth. His truer name is Onward. No discordance in the roll and march of that eternal harmony, whereto the worlds beat time, though faintly heard, until the great hereafter. Mourn in hope. This funeral set a pattern for the public funerals of senior royals later in the century, but not in the decades that followed. For all the monarchs that followed her, except of course for Edward VIII, 
there was one single comprehensive funeral held at St George's Chapel, Windsor. One change that was made, though, was for the lying in state. Unlike Victoria, who never lie in state, all of them, again except Edward VIII, had a period of lying in state at Westminster Hall before being conveyed by train to Windsor. At each of these occasions, hundreds of thousands of people queued for up to 24 hours to see the departed monarch, again setting a pattern that is being followed for Elizabeth II. Queen Alexandra, the wife of Edward VII, broke the mould slightly at her funeral in 1925. This was the first royal funeral that was paid entirely out of public funds, rather than being paid for by the royal family. It also took place in part at Westminster Abbey. This was because St George's Chapel was being renovated at the time, and the alternative choice, the Albert Memorial Chapel, was considered inadequate for the task. Again, though, this was comparatively small, dwarfed by other non-royal funerals held in this period for the unknown soldier in 1920, and Winston Churchill in 1965 at St Paul's Cathedral. Indeed, the grandest 20th century royal funeral to take place in London before 1997 was for Lord Mountbatten, the Queen's cousin and Prince Philip's uncle. All of this brings us neatly to the big one, the one you've all been waiting for, the most public of royal funerals to this day, that of Diana, Princess of Wales, on the 6th of September 1997. I am sure that most of you listening have seen at least part of this. It was watched by an estimated 2.5 billion people worldwide. More than half the British population tuned in on television, a figure only bested by the World Cup final in 1966. I don't think I need to talk about the circumstances surrounding the funeral. Any number of films and documentaries have done that already. But it's worth reiterating that this funeral presented numerous problems for the organisers. Diana's death was completely unexpected, which meant there was almost no plan in place ahead of time. This meant they had to more or less copy the funeral plans for the Queen Mother, with some crucial differences. There was unprecedented public interest in the funeral, combined with, let's say, administrative and etiquettual difficulties surrounding the fact that she was no longer a part of the royal family following her divorce from the then Prince of Wales. The big difference here is that there was no period of lying in state. Following her death in Paris, the coffin was flown back to the UK and then lay in St James's Palace before being taken to Kensington Palace the night before the funeral. This was a purely practical decision. St James's Palace is less than a mile from Westminster Abbey where the service was to take place. This would not allow space for the more than million people who flooded the streets of the capital to see the coffin as it came by. The longer route from Kensington could just about accommodate the unprecedented crowds. The coffin itself was carried on a gun carriage, pulled by horses and accompanied by eight soldiers from the Welsh Guards. The military, however, did not have a prominent role in this funeral. The streets were lined with police, not soldiers, and representatives of her numerous charities followed the coffin. In the words of David Dimbleby, who provided the commentary for the BBC for the event, It is the mirror image of the usual ceremonial state funeral, where the ceremony is designed to attract people. 
Something I've not discussed before is the weather at these funerals. It being Britain, it was usually rubbish, but not with Diana. The procession took place on a glorious early autumn day. The ceremony broke tradition in a number of ways. It saw the reintroduction, after three centuries of absence, of the eulogy in place of the sermon, though given the excoriating way that Earl Spencer criticised the establishment in his piece, I bet they wished they'd stuck with the old ways. The service started with the singing of the national anthem, the first time that had ever been done at a royal funeral. Though much of the music used during the ceremony was traditional, including our old friend Purcell, it famously included Elton John playing a special arrangement of Candle in the Wind, a nod to the unique connection Diana had made with modern Britain. Another, more modern piece came at the end, with John Taverner's song for Athene, whose lyrics were adapted from Hamlet and the Orthodox funeral service. May flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. Remember me, O Lord, when you come into your kingdom. Give rest, O Lord, to your handmaid who has fallen asleep. The choir of saints have found the wellspring of life and door of paradise. Life, a shadow and a dream, weeping at the grave creates the song, Alleluia. Come, enjoy the rewards and crowns I have prepared for you. This was a people's funeral for the people's princess, which is reflected in the inclusion of hymns for the first time, sung during the service. This allowed those in the abbey and outside, which was broadcast on giant screens, to sing along and feel included. These included, I vow to thee my country, the king of love my shepherd is, make me a channel of thy peace, and the great Welsh anthem, guide me O thou great redeemer. The ceremony was a great melting pot of the old and new, of the traditionally Anglican with interfaith songs and modern music of the royal family and the people. Following the service, Diana's body was taken to the family seat at Althorpe in Northamptonshire, where she was buried on an island in a lake in the grounds. Which brings us all to 2002, and the last funeral of a British queen before tomorrow, that of Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother. With the exception of the half-service provided for Queen Alexandra, this was the first funeral for a queen held in London since the 18th century. It really is striking how what feels so old is actually fairly new. As I said before, this funeral bears many similarities with that of Diana, but with the difference being that she was still a serving royal at her death. This meant that the funeral had a far more establishment and military flavour. Her Scottish links and love of that country meant that she was piped from Westminster Hall, where she had laid in state to the Abbey, by the mass pipes and drums, playing My Home and the Mist Covers Mountains of Home.
The day was very clearly divided into three parts. The military farewell, which included the procession from Westminster Hall, the religious ceremony at the Abbey, which was broadcast on television, and then, finally, the private family burial at Windsor, where she was laid to rest alongside her husband and youngest daughter. Though there were hymns at the ceremony at the Abbey, there were only two, both of which were thoroughly traditional. Immortal, invisible God, only wise, and guide me, O thou great Redeemer. This was a nod to the fact that this was a public funeral, albeit one far more restrained than that of Diana. Elton John was not invited. The Dean of Westminster opened proceedings by saying, In gratitude we bid farewell to a greatly loved Queen. Tomorrow we will do so again. of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.